All right, I definitely had to remember to put my earpiece on this morning since I forgot until quarter of the way through last week. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Morning Hour Chapel. We're so happy to have you with us this morning, whether you're here, whether you're at home. Uh, we are just blessed to have you worshiping our loving and living God this morning. A few weeks ago, uh, we started a sermon series that we called A Restoration Project. And I'll turn this on so that will work. Uh, we've been watching as a skilled restorer has begun to transform this rusty, dirty, useless, antique French bread slicer. And we saw him take the whole thing apart uh, to break it down into all of its smallest basic pieces. And we learned that this is what the Holy Spirit does to us as he begins his work of restoration in, in us after we confess our sins to God the Father and accept his free gift of grace through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we watched as this restorer determined that he needed another person to do some of the work. He needed a new wooden handle built. He didn't have the tools. He didn't have the skills or the gifts to do this. Um, and he sent this piece of work off to be done uh, by a friend of his. And we learned that the Holy Spirit wants us to rely on God and on others to help us accomplish things for the kingdom of God. Or to help us when times get difficult, when they get a little bit troubling. And he gives each of Christ's followers gifts, and he wants us to use those gifts. Teaching, serving, giving, encouraging, uh, and, and, and so many other things that the Holy Spirit can empower us to, to build up others and to point those who don't know him to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the video last week, we watched the woodworker use uh, different blades and tools to take that block of wood uh, that we watched, and he made it into this beautiful wooden handle. And um, at first, uh, we watched as he uh, basically just shoved this big chunk of wood onto this uh, wood turner, and he used these huge blades to kind of start cutting into and forming uh, what would become a useful uh, Piece for this bread maker. And this morning, uh, we're not going to watch the woodworker, but we are going to crank things up just a notch. I want you to take a look at this section of the video here. So things are starting to look pretty good for the pieces of this bread maker, aren't they? They're, they're starting to get a little shinier. We're starting to get some of that dirt, some of that grime off of these pieces. But what did you notice? about getting this, these things done. The, the wood starts to look like wood, but before it started to look like wood, we had to get rid of this whole kind of layer of dirt and grime and stuff that, uh, that, was, that was on the wood. The same thing with the blade, all of that rust and everything across the blade. And he used a sandblaster. And of course, you know, how many of us like watching sandblasting. Not too many because we really don't watch it, right? <laughs> but we know what happens. We know what a sandblaster is. We know how it works. And you noticed that when he was using the sandblaster, he had to, he had to put his hands into these really heavy gloves 
Because sandblasting is, is dangerous work. And if, if we're not careful when we're doing that work, we can really kind of hurt ourselves. And I've brought a couple of pictures of people who have sandblasted. No, I haven't. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. I looked at them myself. They were uh, probably looked a little bit like Paul's leg this morning. Um, but it's dangerous work. And, and the sandblasting cabinet actually has those gloves built in. There's no way you can possibly forget to cover your hands before you take this pressured sand and start working on things. And it can be dangerous work if you don't know what you're doing. But it can even be dangerous work if you do know what you're doing. Right? Paul injured himself this week. He's been doing farming for, I mean, how many years? Years and years and years. Too many years to count. And he still was able somehow to injure himself this week and had to go to the hospital to get stitches. You got some stitches, right? So even when we know what we're doing, some of this work can be really, really dangerous. When we're being sanctified, when we're being restored by the Holy Spirit, sometimes it is rough and dangerous work. And often... We're going to suffer. And sometimes that comes as a surprise to Christians because a lot of times in our witness, what we say is, oh, God is great. God is good. Our life is so much better now because of God being in it. And what we don't share is sometimes life really stinks, even with God in our lives. And we're surprised by this, but really we shouldn't be. If we've read our Bibles, if we've read the words of Jesus Christ, we know that living a life that is pleasing to God is probably going to be a little unpleasant. Jesus told his disciples in John 16.33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. That's what Jesus told his disciples, his followers. In 1 Peter 2.21, one of his disciples writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You mean we got to follow Christ into suffering? Yeah, we do. When we live a life pleasing to God, we will likely suffer for it. Just as Christ suffered because of the lies of the religious leaders, because of the weakness of the political leaders, we are likely to suffer as we follow him. And just as Jesus Christ picked up a 200-pound cross and carried it on his shoulder, the instrument of his own suffering, the instrument of his own death, just as he carried that cross for us, he calls us to carry the same cross, to walk into the same suffering, and maybe, just maybe, walk into the same death. Anybody here like to suffer? 
Any good sufferers here? All right, not too many people. Um, I kind of figured that. Nobody enjoys suffering. We don't like to be in pain. We don't like physical pain. We don't like emotional pain. And self-preservation is a purely human trait. We want to take care of ourselves. We want to be uh, safe. We want to make sure that we can avoid pain as much as possible. The problem is that we don't even like to be uncomfortable. We don't even like to be inconvenienced. We complain a lot about being uncomfortable or being inconvenienced. Now this time of year especially, in my house and probably in yours, we like to complain about the weather, right? Because we know in Pennsylvania we have 14 seasons. Well, I don't know if I should keep the heat on or switch it over to air conditioning. And, and we've said these words. How many of you have said these exact words? I wish the weather would make up its mind. Anybody ever said those exact words? I wish the weather would make up. I mean, come on, it's terribly inconvenient to know whether or not I should wear a jacket when I leave the house in the morning. I got to be comfortable. I got to make these choices. Anybody know what we call that? When we start complaining about those things? There was a term that came up probably, oh, maybe over a decade or so ago. We, we call these first world problems. And the name comes from a time when we used to call developing countries third world countries. And we don't do that anymore. It's a disparaging comment. We say developing countries. Wendy works for a, an organization that works with developing countries. And in developing countries, they don't have air conditioning. And the only heat that they might have comes from whatever fires they're able to build to keep themselves warm or to cook on. The only clean water that some of these countries have is, sh is shared well that they might have to walk for miles to get water and to carry it back on their shoulders. Can you imagine? Imagine Americans needing to walk for miles to go and get clean water. Or not even clean water, just well water. Imagine having to walk for miles and then having to carry that water back and you can only use as much as you can carry, right? 10 gallons, 20 gallons, if you're strong, maybe 30 gallons you can carry back and that's your water for the day because you ain't making multiple trips if you're walking to get water. Inconvenient? We complain about walking into the next room to push a button to switch our air conditioning and our heat back and forth. We complain about the person who's driving too slow in front of us on the highway when we're late for work. I am late for work. 
I got to get someplace. And this person's driving. Of course, I'm late because I didn't get out the door on time because I snoozed my alarm a couple of times and then I had to decide whether or not I needed a jacket to uh, go at, you know, to go out to my car for the 30 seconds that I got to go out there. And of course, you know, our hot water didn't heat up fast enough this morning because it was a little colder. So I was late and this person is making me even later driving slow in front of me. I'm going to guess that nobody listening to this message reacts in that way. I'm going to guess that everybody here is, is, is a, the, the patient and kind and, and, and exhibits the fruit of the Holy Spirit all the time. Nobody feels inconvenienced about anything. Am, am I right? Amen? Okay. Let me ask you a question, though. If we can't handle the tiny inconveniences, how in the world are we going to handle being able to suffer for Christ? How are we going to handle the suffering that comes every day from taking up our cross and following Jesus to pain and death? How are we going to be able to handle people either figuratively or literally spitting in our faces? Punching or slapping us. Wanting to kill us for our faith. We might not even be able to handle people saying mean things about us. How are we going to handle that true persecution, that true suffering? been reading this uh, book for an upcoming, uh, upcoming class I'm taking for Brethren in Christ. Uh, book, uh, the class is called Theology of the Church. Uh, it's one of the, the required courses that pastors take. And the book is called Almost Christian. And it's a very appropriate title, Almost Christian. Provides a, a deep dive into the faith of young people. We've got a couple of young people here today. And it says a lot about young people in America how they build their faith, how they develop their faith. But it says a lot about the adults that help them or not develop their faith, grow their faith. One of the major themes of this book is the idea that the church in America has fallen victim to something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic Deism. Basically, moralistic therapeutic, de uh, therapeutic deists have a skewed view about God. They see God not as an all-powerful, all-loving deity, but more as a butler. More as a therapist. The God butler hangs around in the background. You know, we all know what a butler is, a servant, right? Um, some of you came to the women's tea yesterday and the guys were kind of hanging back and, and, and clearing dishes as we were needed and then 
going back into the kitchen when we weren't so that you can't, you know, see us or hear us or, you know. So the God butler hangs out in the background, got his little towel across his arm. And when we say, oh, God butler, I need something. Oh, yes. God comes out, does his thing, comes back. Let me know if you need anything else, sir. The God therapist is there to tell us everything is going to be okay. I want you to be happy and you should want to be happy and you should do anything you can to make yourself happy. I want you to feel better about yourself. And the focus for the moralistic therapeutic deist is self. What can God do for me and how can I live my best life with the fewest inconveniences, with the fewest problems, and be happy. That's the view that a lot of Christians and a lot of churches have of God. Like a cosmic genie, God is there to grant us unlimited wishes and to leave us alone until we need him. This God would certainly not say things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. This God would certainly not say, in this world you will have troubles. This God would not tell us, as Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. When we believe in the deity at the center of moralistic, therapeutic deism, our mantra becomes, ask not what you can do for God, but what God can do for me. Jesus Christ has not called us to that life. Jesus Christ have, has not called us to a life of comfort. Contrary to what a lot of popular preachers want to tell you. Jesus Christ has not called us to a life of convenience. Because a lot of the things that Jesus asks us to do are wholly inconvenient. Holy Spirit called me to pastor a church in Dillsburg. And it was wholly inconvenient. I was working towards a six-figure job. Had great hours, great benefits, great pay. I was comfortable, lived in a nice house. Kids were able to go and do anything they wanted to do. Terribly inconvenient. Then to pack up the entire family, rip my children out of the school that they have been going to since they were in kindergarten. Terribly inconvenient to schlep all of our stuff up to Dillsburg, find a new house. It was inconvenient, but it was what God called us to do. And we talked about it as a family. It wasn't just... God called me, God called my entire family to come up to Dillsburg. Inconvenient. 
but we never suffered. Not once did we ever suffer. God did take care of us. Jesus Christ has not called us to a life that's all about me. It's not even a little bit about me. Jesus Christ has called us to a life that is about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's what we are called to when we decide to follow Jesus Christ. And you know, it's an interesting commandment, this, this uh, love your neighbor as yourself thing. I've always coupled that commandment with Jesus' words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, and, you know, kind of thought about, oh, you know, that's a really nice thing, you know, make sure that you don't treat people, you know, worse than you would want to be treated and all this. It's not like that at all. It's not about that at all. I think it goes deeper. I think it goes much deeper. I think that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what he's telling you is to love your neighbor as much as you are loved by God. Love your neighbor as much as you are loved by the Father who has given you grace and mercy and has forgiven every terrible, horrible thing that you have ever done in your entire life. That's how much you love your neighbor. It's kind of hard on any given day to know how much we're going to love ourselves. How many of you love yourself every single day? Sometimes I downright hate myself. Can't stand myself. And I'll be honest with you, there have been days I've tried to decide whether or not I want to keep living. I didn't think I was suicidal. But I also didn't think I'd be missed. I also didn't think that anything I was doing was really that important. That if I wasn't there anymore, somebody else couldn't do it. I didn't love myself. And see, that's the problem with loving our neighbor as ourselves. It wavers. We go back and forth. We waffle between loving ourselves and not loving ourselves. But you know what doesn't change? God loving us. God pouring out his love for us. The central message of the Christian faith is that God, the creator of all things in heaven and in earth, created human beings to be his children. And when his children rebelled against him, he didn't stop loving them. If it's, if it's possible, and I really don't think it is, but if it's possible, he started loving us more. And I know that God's love is constant. He can't love us more. He can't love us less. But sometimes I think about it and I'm like, we rebelled against God. We actively rebel against him every single day. And he doesn't kick us out of the house. He doesn't tell us we're no good. He doesn't look us in the face and say, you know what, because you became pregnant, you're no longer my daughter. You know what, because you are a homosexual, you are no longer my son. He loves us more. He loves us always. 
And that's the love he expects us to have for other people. God stepped out of his glorious home in heaven, out of the perfection where he lived and became a human with all the human frailties, with all of the human weaknesses and temptations. And he came to suffer an unimaginable physical and emotional pain before he was mercilessly killed on a cross so that his children could be saved from the death of soul that is hell. That's how much God loves us. In the video we saw this uh, rust remover and the guy put all the pieces, the brass pieces, into this little container. And he took his little uh, container thing and, and he poured this rust remover. And he poured it and he poured it until that all of the things in that container were absolutely covered with this rust remover. And he let it sit a while and he shook it around a while and the chemicals started to do their work the chemicals started to eat away at all of the things that were covering the true beauty of these pieces. And that's how God loves us. That's the way God pours his love over us. He doesn't just do it a little bit. He doesn't just give us a little splash. He pours out his love so that that container completely overflows. So that we can experience our true created beauty. And that is how God wants us to love others. He wants us to cover others with his love. He wants us to pour out so much love on people that it overflows God wants us to love other people so much that we are willing to do the unimaginable. He wants us to love people so much that we are willing to suffer. That we are willing to die for them. Not for us, for them. That's how much God wants us to love other people all for somebody else, all for anyone else, for everyone else, anybody that we come into contact with. Jesus suffered and died for all of humanity's souls. We can't die for all of humanity's souls, but you know what? There might come a time when Jesus calls you to die for one soul. to show so much love, to suffer, to die, so that that one other person can meet him. So that that one other person can experience the love that you have experienced your entire Christian lives. And it's hard. 
it's hard to think about giving up everything. That's what Christ calls us to be willing to do. We can just get to a place where we can get past ourselves. Where we can stop thinking about our conveniences, our comfort, and we can allow God to use us however he wants, however he wants to use us to point others to him. If we are willing finally to lay down our lives at the feet of God the Father and say, whatever you want, whatever you need me to do, that is what I am willing to do because I want to love people as you do. I want to love people so much that you would not have anybody suffer in hell. To be dead to the soul. Can we get to the point where we actually ask God to let us do whatever it is that he needs us to do in order to save one. Can we get to that place? By ourselves, no, we can't. It is only through the strength of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us that we are even close to being able to have that kind of power. Holy Spirit knows that that is a backwards way of life. Please let me suffer. Please let me die for another person and put you in the nut house for saying something like that. But it is that backwards life that upside-down kingdom where the king is the servant. Where the king dies for his subjects and not the other way around. That's the kind of kingdom that we're looking at. We're going to be looked at like we're crazy. We're going to be looked at with contempt. We're going to be looked at with disdain. We're going to suffer persecution and not that fake persecution that American Christians are always whining about, but the real persecution that we see in places like Egypt and China and in places in the Middle East where Christians are jailed and tortured and killed because of the name of Jesus. We may never face death for the name of Jesus. We may never face Suffering for the name of Jesus. If those things are not what God is calling us to, we're not going to face them. But are we willing to? Can we be like Abraham? Willing to offer up everything, including his only son. Because God said, that's what I need you to do. Are we willing to do that. We have a choice to make here today. Are we going to live the life that Christ calls us to live? Are we going to risk everything, family, friends, torture, death, or are we going to choose self-preservation and play it safe? That's the choice we have. 
And God knows we're going to suffer for our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But he's also made some incredible promises to us. In Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Psalm 34, 18 assures us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And we're told in Romans 5, 3 to 4 that we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts and He wants us to give it all away. He wants us to pour that love back out, not to keep it for ourselves, not to use Him as some sort of butler, genie, therapist, but to give it to other people. And we can pour God's love onto those who don't know Him and we can show them the way to the Father And the good news is that we are loved by the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Yes, we're going to suffer as the Holy Spirit begins to restore our souls and continues to restore our souls to its original glory, to its original beauty, to its original usefulness. We're going to suffer. But I pray that we are able as the church and as individuals to share with others this message. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. And salvation. It's got nothing to do with me. And it's got everything to do with God. We don't care what others think of us. We don't care about preserving ourselves. We don't care about our comfort. We don't care about our convenience. We share in the suffering of Jesus Christ so that you may be saved. Can we say that? Do we dare? Go that far. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have poured out your love, your grace, and your mercy on us. Forgive us for not pouring your love and grace and mercy on us. Father, we we want to live the life that you want us to live. Father, empty us of ourselves and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we might follow Christ our crosses on our shoulders into whatever you have prepared for us for the sake of your kingdom. 
I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We sing that song, My Savior's Always There for Me. We need to ask ourselves one question. Are we always there for Him? Do we want to be there for Him? In other words, are we living lives to serve the God of creation? To live lives pleasing to Him? To do whatever He needs us to do to bring souls to Him? Pray on that this week. God bless you.